Thank you for downloading this sermon from Trinity Presbyterian Church in Spartanburg, South Carolina. For more information about Trinity, visit our website at www.trinityspartanburg.com. We'll stand for the reading of God's Word. We'll be focused on Malachi chapter 4, verses 3 and 4, but I'm going to read the whole chapter, chapter 4. This is Malachi chapter 4. Grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of the Lord stands forever. For behold, the day is coming, burning like a furnace, and all the arrogant and every evildoer will be chaff. And the day that is coming will set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you who fear my name, the sun of righteousness will rise with healing in its wings, and you will go forth and skip about like calves from the stall. You will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I am going to send you Elijah the prophet before the coming of the great and terrible day of the Lord. He will restore the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers so that I will not come and smite the land with a curse. This is the word of the Lord. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your word. Without your word, we would be left only to our own thoughts and imaginations. And all of us would make shipwreck of whatever faith we had. So, Father, we pray as we give attention to your word that we would be humble, that we would be children before it, and that we would be ready to learn. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Be seated. So, again, we turn our attention to the last couple exhortations from the prophet Malachi. God has had mercy on his people and his servants by, again, like all the other prophets before, pointing out their sins and calling them to repent and to return to him. But they have not honored God as their father. They have offered tainted and blemished animal sacrifices. They've given up the bad, crippled animals. They have profaned God's name. The priests have turned away from the law and the God of the law. They have practiced idolatry. They have married foreigners, and that's idolatry because they're marrying idolaters. They have accused God of evil. They have practiced oppression of widows, orphans, and strangers. They've been unwilling to bring in the whole tithe and honor God with their money. And they have said, in the end, it's, it's vain to serve God. It's just vain. It's useless. And all throughout the book, the hardness of the people's heart has been repeatedly demonstrated by their unbelieving questions and defensiveness after the prophet has prophesied to them. Every time the prophet announces their sin, they essentially say, how is that true? To God's statement that he has loved them, they say, how have you loved us? Certainly doesn't seem like it. 
To their disrespect of God, they say, how have, you, how have we despised your name? To their offering of blemished sacrifices, they say, how have we defiled you? To God's rejecting their offerings, they say, for what reason? I mean, why would you reject these? These are perfectly good sacrifices. To their wearying God with their words, they say, how have we wearied him? I'm sure he loves to hear us, blah, 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 blah. To God's calling them to return to him, they say, how shall we return? To their robbing God, they say, how have we robbed you? To their arrogant words spoken against God, they say, what have we spoken against you? All of of this defensiveness by the people. All of this unwillingness to accept the words of the prophet. They'll not accept what God has said about their sins because they're proud. And all throughout this book, we have not seen a change in their disposition. God said there will be those who fear him, as we looked at last time in Malachi 3, 16 to 18, a few weeks ago. Um, There are those who serve God, and there are those who don't serve God. And what remains to be said after all of that's been said in this book? What remains to be said? Well, in addition to verses 1 and 2 of chapter 4, which taught us both the day of judgment and the healing we have in the, the, the son of righteousness. We contemplate the prophet's words in chapter 4, verses 3 and 4. In these verses, a trust, and, and it's important to realize that this section is addressed to those who fear God. It's those who are believing in him. It's the redeemed. Those who have known the healing of Jesus Christ, the son of righteousness, we learn that those believers, those ones, will tread down the wicked. Those believers will tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing. Now, what does that mean? What does that mean? Um, It seems to imply that believers will be used by God in judging the wicked at the end of the ages. Is that true? Will believers be used by God to judge the wicked? How is that supposed to be encouraging to to us who are effeminate? Right? How is it encouraging to say, you're going to crush the the blankety-blank out of the wicked? How is that supposed to be encouraging to a people who abhor judgment and always caw, caw, caw about this or that not being fair and do not judge, and can't we all just get along? Well, first, is it the case that God's people will have some part in the judgment of the world on the last day? It's undoubtedly all throughout Scripture that God's people, not just Jesus himself, will have a part in the judgment of the wicked. Psalm 149 affirms that, saying, Let the godly ones exult in glory. Let them sing for joy on their beds. Let the high praises of God be in their mouth and a two-edged sword in their hand to execute vengeance on the nations and punishment on the peoples, to bind their kings with chains and their nobles with fetters of iron, to execute on them the judgment written. This is an honor for all his godly ones. Praise the Lord. And remember, that's a song we're supposed to sing. That's Psalm 149. Notice that it says that that God's people will execute vengeance 
on the nations. Jesus tells the apostles also that they would sit on thrones and execute judgments on a particular uh, group of people, a particular subset of the world. In Matthew 19, we read this, And Jesus said to them, Truly I say to you, that you who have followed me in the regeneration when the Son of Man will sit on his glorious throne, you also shall sit upon twelve thrones, get this, judging the twelve tribes of Israel. The apostles judging the twelve tribes of Israel. Note what the apostle Paul writes to the church in Thessalonica. He says, now may our God and Father himself and Jesus our Lord direct our way to you and may the Lord cause you to increase and abound in love for one another and for all people just as also we also do for you so that, listen to this, so that he may establish your hearts without blame in holiness before our God and Father at the coming of our Lord Jesus with his saints. Right, So it, 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 when Jesus comes to judge the world, he arrives with his saints. Willingly, those saints will affirm the good work that Jesus Christ has been doing and is doing. They will applaud every one of his actions. And then I can't think of any clearer statement that the saints of God will be used somehow in God's judgment on the last day. 1 Corinthians 6. Does any one of you, when he has a case before his brother, dare to go to law before the unrighteous and not before the saints? Now, the Corinthians were mixed up. They were sinning by taking their problems, which the elders of the church should have dealt with, and putting them before secular courts. That was not good for the church. That was not good for the courts. It was not good for the reputation of of believers. But And so the the whole context of 1 Corinthians 6 is that... that, um, judgments okay and then it goes on to say this or do you not know that the saints will judge the world the saints will judge the world what if the world is judged by you are you not competent to constitute the smallest law courts i mean if you're going to judge the world can't you get your act together to figure out these disputes and then it says do you not know that we will judge angels How much more matters of this life? So how is it that the saints, God's people, God's called ones, will participate in the judgment which has been committed to the Son? And the Son has had judgment, the final judgment, committed to him by the Father. And and Calvin makes this point, and I think it's very helpful. He says that we, as we are united to Christ, will be assessors, will be assessors of Jesus' perfect judgment. We'll stand by and assess it, and that, by, and, and that, by our faithfulness and godliness now, we judge the world. So, when it happens, we're there, we're applauding it, we're praising God, we're, we're adding our, our voices to the, all of those songs that we read in the book of Revelation, and, and, um, and yet, we also do it now by walking in faithfulness and godliness before the world. Nothing causes someone to feel more judged than when you walk in faithfulness. Just be faithful. Just show them your faith in God. Do some 
some sacrificial act and you will see that the world hates you for it because they have a hard time busting out of their self-centeredness. So, so Calvin writes, the Son of God will receive his saints into a participation with him in this honor as assessors. Apart from this, they will judge the world as indeed they begin already to do because their piety, faith, fear of the Lord, good conscience, and integrity of life will make unbelievers altogether inexcusable. As it is said of Noah that by his faith he condemned all the men of his age. Noah, by his faith, condemned all the men of his age. And we as as passive Americans are like, man, that was pretty gnarly of Noah to do that. But he was obeying God. That's all he was doing was obeying God. And it condemned the whole world. In Hebrews 11.7 it says, By faith Noah, by faith Noah, being warned by God about things not yet seen, in reverence prepared an ark for the salvation of his household, by which he condemned the world and became an heir of the righteousness which is according to faith. Matthew Henry makes a similar point, being sure to affirm that it is the Son of God who does the actual work. He does the actual judging, but that the saints participate again by acclamation of the Son's work. He says, believers themselves are indeed to be judged, but they may first be acquitted and then advanced to the bench to approve and applaud the righteous judgment of Christ both on men and angels. In no other sense can they be judges. They are not partners in their Lord's commission, but they have the honor to sit by and see his proceeding against the wicked world and approve it. Approve it, smile at it, dance as the wicked are being judged. I mean, this is an astonishing honor for the saints, is it not? Does it not cause us, you know, to pause and to to really relax so that we can leave room for the vengeance of God? To think that the Son of God will judge perfectly, revealing every word that was said, whether evil or good, and that God's people, redeemed by the blood of that Lamb, will sit by and applaud everything he determines. It's very hard to enter into that work now, isn't it? It's very hard to enter into that work now because we haven't gone through the process of being finally acquitted by the Lord. We continue to sin in this life, and so every time we make a judgment, we feel the weight of our own sin. Right? Or, or we should, unless one of our sins is a complete lack of self-awareness and self-examination. The work of the elder board is very difficult because throughout that work, we're called to form judgments and for the good of those under our care, share those judgments with them and then show them the path to repentance. But when we do so, we make a judgment such, you know, such as, such as this, pursuing sexual sin is going to break you and lead you away from Christ. And every time we do that, we remember all the times we've sinned in a similar way. Who are we to judge? That's what's going through our minds every time we form judgments. Who are we to judge? 
but like being a father or mother, which is a work that's constantly filled with making judgments and judgment calls and warnings to our children, so is the work of the elders. And the elders can't set it aside in the same way that mothers and fathers can't set it aside. If you do, you're allowing stupid 12-year-olds to make their own decisions for their life. Not recommended. Stupid in the biblical sense, right? Unwise. And here in our passage, we were encouraged by being told that believers will tread down the wicked. Tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day which I am preparing. And as we say that, we are thinking, but who are we to judge? I'm no better than the most wicked sinner who ever lived, and there, there is, there's truth in that. There's truth in that statement. But we cannot stay there. Right? If we remain with that attitude, we will continue to sin so that grace may abound. Rather, we should pursue righteousness, putting off the sins which so easily entangle us, so that with clear consciences we can have the proper perspective on sin and on sinners. Right? It's very hard for us to rejoice in the just judgments of God. And that's pathetic. I mean, point in case, did you feel awkward when we sang Psalm 2 earlier? Do you feel awkward every time we sing Psalm 2? Did it somehow grate against you to sing these words? My son, just ask of me, and I will give the nations of the earth for you to rule them with a mighty iron rod, for you to dash them all to pieces and then pound them into dirt. You will tread on the wicked. Until you spread your fame and power and love abroad to all the nations bow before the Son of God. Does that make you feel awkward? I mean, you know, it's good we're calling God to dash them all to pieces, but then do we have to go on and say and then pound them all to dirt? I remember when that song was released by My Soul Among Lions a few years ago, and I was perplexed by the song. I didn't get it. I remember talking to Jody Killingsworth, who wrote the song, and telling him that it was really awkward, even wrong, to sing such a happy song about God's judgment. How in the world can the banjo be used happily in a song about judgment? And he, he looked at me and he said, well, that's the most important aspect of the song. That's precisely what we intend to do by it. They, they were trying to discipline themselves and God's people to rejoice in the judgment of God. To remember that it is undeniably a good thing that the Son of God will judge the wicked. And it is something that rather than dreading, we should absolutely with every fiber of our being look forward to. And then we learn that not only should we look forward to it now, but we should begin judging the world by living righteously before God. And that we will accompany Jesus as he brings perfect justice in the end. There's no getting around the fact that believers should anticipate with joy the final judgment of God. 
Oh, yeah, in the meantime, work out your salvation with fear and trembling, right? But do not judge God with your modern notions of fairness and essentially cast dispersions on God because this world ends in a tribunal of his making. Psalm 48 says this, We have thought on your loving kindness, O God, in the midst of your temple. As is your name, O God, so is your praise to the ends of the earth. Your right hand is full of righteousness. Let Mount Zion be glad. Let the daughters of Judah rejoice because of your judgments. Because of your judgments, let them rejoice. And don't forget the vision of the judgment of the whore of Babylon. The great city in the book of Revelation. Note the end, Note the end of this passage. And I'm going I'm to read all of 18 in the beginning of 19. Because it makes this point and it shows the fierce judgment of God. After these things I saw another angel coming down from heaven. Having great authority and the earth was illumined with his glory. And he cried out with a mighty voice saying, Fallen! Fallen is Babylon the great. She has become a dwelling place of demons and a prison of every unclean spirit and a prison of every unclean and hateful bird. For all the nations have drunk of the wine of the passion of her immorality and the kings of the earth have committed acts of immorality with her and the merchants of the earth have become rich by the wealth of her sensuality. And I heard another voice from heaven saying, come out of her, my people. So that you will not participate in her sins and receive her plagues. For her sins have piled up as high as heaven and God has remembered her iniquities. Pay her back even as she has paid. And give back to her double according to her deeds in the cup which she has mixed, mixed twice as much for her. To the degree that she glorified herself and lived sensuously, to the same degree give her torment and mourning. For she says in her heart, I sit as a queen, and I am not a widow and will never see mourning. For this reason, in one day her plagues will come, pestilence and mourning and famine, and she will be burned up with fire, for the Lord God who judges her is strong. And the kings of the earth, who committed acts of immorality and lived sensuously with her, will weep and lament over her when they see the smoke of her burning, standing at a distance because of the fear of her torment, saying, Whoa, whoa, the great city, Babylon, the strong city, for in one hour your judgment has come. And the merchants of the earth weep and mourn over her because no one buys their cargoes anymore. Cargoes of gold and silver and precious stones and pearls and fine linen and purple and silk and scarlet and every kind of citron wood and every article of ivory and every article made from very costly wood and bronze and iron and marble and cinnamon and spices and incense and perfume and frankincense and wine and olive oil and fine flour and wheat and cattle and sheep and cargoes of horses and chariots and slaves and human lives. The fruit you long for has gone from you. And all things that were luxurious and splendid have passed away from you, and men will no longer find them. The merchants of these things who have become rich from her 
will stand at a distance because of the fear of her torment, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city, she who is clothed in fine linen and purple and scarlet and adorned with gold and precious stones and pearls, for in one hour such great wealth has been laid waste. And every shipmaster and every passenger and sailor and as many as make their living by the sea stood at a distance and were crying out as they saw the smoke of her burning, saying, What city is like the great city? And they threw dust on their heads and were crying out, weeping and mourning, saying, Woe, woe, the great city in which all who had ships at sea because rich by her wealth became rich by her wealth. For in one hour she has been laid waste, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, because God has pronounced judgment for you against her. And then a strong angel took up a stone like a great millstone and threw it into the sea, saying, So will Babylon, the great city, be thrown down with violence and will not be found any longer. And the sound of harpists and musicians and flute players and trumpeters will not be heard in her any longer. And no craftsman of any craft will be found in you any longer. And the sound of a mill will not be heard in you any longer. And the light of a lamp will not shine in you any longer. And the voice of the bridegroom and the bride will not be heard in you any longer. For your merchants were the great men of the earth because all the nations were deceived by your sorcery. And in her was found the blood of the prophets and of saints and of all who have been slain on the earth. And after these things, I heard something like a loud voice of a great multitude in heaven saying, Hallelujah. Salvation and glory and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. For he has judged the great harlot who is corrupting the earth with her immorality. And he has avenged the blood of his bondservants on her. And a second time they said, Hallelujah. Her smoke rises up forever and ever. Now, dear brothers and sisters, ask yourself what is more arrogant, accusing God of being unfair because he hates wickedness and will bring it to judgment. Or allowing God to be God and affirming that very real fact that God will throw down all those who rejected his son and he will do so with great violence. We have a tendency to think it's more proper for us to be questioning, right? Questioning. And questioning the propriety of God to choose some and reject others, that such a notion, you know, that such a position of questioning is actually humble. But I tell you, it's arrogant. It's the height of arrogance. It's blasphemous. Because it refuses to accept what the scriptures teach about God. And his coming judgment about every, about, about our very participation in that judgment. There is a way that you can think yourself more holy than God, and that is certainly the case when you refuse as a matter of principle and as a posture of what you think is humility, refuse to rejoice and look forward to the coming judgments of God. 
Do you want to make him make the rough places plain and the crooked places straight? And then stop judging God. So that's verse 3. What of verse 4? We're taught this, Remember the law of Moses, my servant, even the statutes and ordinances which I commanded him in Horeb for all Israel. That's very simple. It's connected, obviously, to the previous verse. Remember the Ten Commandments. Walk in them. Pursue them. Walk in them, and as you walk in them, you will more and more be able to rejoice in God's justice. It's because of your unholiness that you don't want to rejoice in God's justice. But walk, pursue holiness, and you will more and more rejoice in God's justice. Pursue sin, and not only will it affect your body, it will begin to pervert the way you think about God. You will be unable to properly and joyfully sing Psalm 2 because you will hate God for judging wickedness, for judging you for the sins you love and continue to indulge yourself in. So remember the Ten Commandments, remember the law of Moses, the statutes and the ordinances. It's, it's a strange thing, but it's rather obvious, isn't it, that when we walk in holiness, we rejoice in the holiness of God. When we walk in sin, we do not rejoice in the holiness of God. Because the holiness of God is contradicting us. The Apostle Paul argues along these lines in Hebrews 10. He says, For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of the truth, there no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much severer punishment Do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God? And as regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified, and as insulted the Spirit of grace, for we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, and again, the Lord will judge his people. It is a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. Willful sinning. Willful sinning after knowing God's truth leads to what? It leads to a terrifying expectation of judgment. That is what you will be thinking about Christ's coming. You will not be prepared to rejoice. You will not be prepared to applaud God's judgments. You will have a terrifying expectation of what's coming. Walking in righteousness after knowing God's truth leads to what? It leads to this, as the Apostle Paul writes in 2 Timothy. He says this about himself near the end of his life. For I am already being poured out as a drink offering, and the time of my departure has come. I have fought the good fight. I have finished the course. I have kept the faith. In the future there is laid up for me the crown of righteousness, which the Lord, the righteous judge, will award to me on that day. And not only to me, and then he says this, but to all those who loved his appearing. Not those who arrive there with a terrifying expectation of judgment, but to those who have loved his appearing. 
So pursuing your sins will make you hate God's justice. It will make you shrink back from the very thought of rejoicing ever in his judgments. And in the end, you will judge God. That's where your faith will end. You'll become the arbiter of what's true and right and what is justice. And you will determine that God is unjust. But pursuing righteousness, pursuing godliness, pursuing uh, pursuing the, the perfecting of holiness and the fear of God will make you love God's justice and anticipate with joy its culmination. And so you on that final day will not... Um, will not be calling for those mountains to fall upon you, but rather you'll be getting ready. You'll be getting your voice ready to go raw from, from shouting praises to God. You'll be thinking about how, how bruised your hands are going to be from applauding his judgments. You will have joy like you've never seen as you see everything in this world be put right in the end of unrighteousness.